Okay, everybody expects us to have an anime podcast. Michael Peters, Justin Charity, at long last, are they podcasting once again about anime? No. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. Honestly, this podcast might turn out to be like the Eddie Murphy, Martin Lawrence movie Life, except neither of us is in prison, and in fact, we're not even taping in the same location. But we will be talking a lot about the millennial life. You know, music, video games, strange stuff from the dark corners of the internet that piques our interest. People think this is going to be, oh, a little topic A, oh, what's topic B, oh, a little, you know, chit-chat. No. Every time you tune into this podcast, we are going to lock you into a room for 45 minutes, and we are going to do criticism. We are going to get to the bottom of every Scooby-Doo mystery that the discourse produces for us each week. Mark my words. Man, that was that was a lot. But anyway, we are excited about it. We are excited. We're excited. We're super excited. I'm Justin Charity. And I'm Micah Peters. And this is Sound Only. We're back on August 11th. Catch us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Let's go. Basketball is very good. Hello, and welcome to the Ringer NBA show, and welcome back to the group chat. I am Justin Verrier, and joining me on the line from Dallas, Jonathan Charks. What's up, buddy? It's good to be back. We've got a lot of new faces. It's exciting. Yeah, a couple old ones. Rob Mahoney. What's up, Rob? Not a lot. Enjoying this bubble action. What's up with you guys? And also Logan Murdoch, our, our newest staff writer. What's up, buddy? Good to be here, man. Logan did uh, Amin El Hassan's podcast before mine, so I'm going to hold it against him. Uh, going forward, but oh, okay, all right, <laughs> all right, for sure. Big time You're media right. guy over here. Okay. Yeah, man. Yeah. So it's been a while since uh, we've done one of these officially. We've done a couple one-offs during uh, the last dance episodes, uh, but it's good to be back. A couple things have changed, obviously, uh, in the world. Just a couple, not not many though. John, you uh, you had a little bit of news during the break, right? Yeah, I'm a dad now. Son's already wow. four oh, wow. months old. Hey. Congratulations, Shout out Jackson Dean. And during the break, Rob also baked a lot of bread. So congrats, Rob. I did, but we're, you know, I'm very proud. The draft profile isn't probably as good as for my loaves as for John's son, but you know, maybe we'll catch up in the, uh, in the under 17s or something down the line. So we're going to try something a little bit different on group chat. I guess it's a little bit different. We kind of settled on uh, smaller group settings uh, up to like one or two people at, at times, which I guess is more of an intimate conversation than a group chat. Uh, but we're going to try to do these first segments with three, sometimes four people. You'll see a lot of me. You'll see a lot of Sharks and, and Rob. But uh, we're going to rotate guests in like Logan. Chris Ryan will be here. Uh, a couple other Ringer staffers will jump into the mix. Uh, we'll do that for the first half of the podcast. And then we will switch to Nerd Corner in the second half where we say goodbye to our guest. And we dive a little bit deeper into a team or maybe a couple teams and, and, and kind of really dig into what's going on with them. Uh, but I wanted to start off with last night's barn burner uh, between the Blazers and the Rockets. The Blazers won this game, but I kind of want to start with the Rockets because they've been super interesting. Uh, to me, they've been the most impressive team of the bubble so far. They're 2-1 and one with wins over the Bucks and the Mavs, and then obviously last night, a close loss to Portland. Uh, Logan, just starting with you. Have what what have you saw or what have you seen with the Rockets and how impressive do you think they've been in relation to kind of some of the other teams you've seen? I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, I, the Rockets are probably my favorite team in the bubble right now, and I think it, and it, it just 
I have we haven't seen a team like this that has just gone full go. We're just going to go small. I, they remind me a little bit of the 07 Warriors in that regard, where they just don't care. They don't care about any uh, conventional wisdom. What they what, what anyone thinks, they're going to go completely small and unapologetically small. And I really like that. I really liked how they played against the Bucks, where you know the, the Bucks are a very very big team, and that's probably one of their biggest tests. And they won. It went down the stretch with defense, and that's not something that I was expecting. So I think ever since that game against the Bucks, I, that's been my favorite team so far in this bubble. Yeah, it was funny last night watching. It seemed like Nurkic looked like Gulliver at times when all of the Rockets' small defenders tried to swarm him in the post. And the Blazers, to, to their credit, they really like worked that. They went to Nurkic a lot. They went to Collins a lot. Uh, Charks, is, has there been anything different about the way the Rockets have played during this bubble setting, or is this just a continuation of just this extreme uh, small ball that they've been doing? I got to give a shout out to uh, NBA Twitter's favorite player, Jeff Green. He's been big for them. I think like he's really found himself as a small ball five. If you remember, go back to the uh, 2018 Cavs when LeBron kind of carried him to the finals. They were playing Jeff Green as a small five a lot, and he's good in that role. He's a freaking tank. His lack of skill is less important at the five. He can make corner threes. And now with like, if you go Jeff Green, Robert Covington, PJ Tucker, you've got enough side. That's six nine, six eight, and six five. All those guys are really strong. They're pretty quick. They're smart defenders. Like for as small as they are, they play big when they have to. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about the bubble as a whole is I do wonder how much that setting is going to play to certain teams' strengths, right? You wonder if, like, camaraderie is more of a, a, a factor in this, or if playing a more streamlined style, perhaps, like the Rockets play, that makes things a little bit more easier because you don't have perhaps as much prep time in between games. Rob, you spent a lot of time around the Rockets. Is there anything that jumped out to you about them so far? I think there's a lot, and some of it is just what you mentioned. You know, what which teams benefit from this bubble environment, from these unique competitive circumstances. And it's, you know, as much as, you know, getting LeBron rest is going to help the Lakers. The Rockets are a team that, you know, we saw in that Bucks game have to be so high effort to win against competitive teams. It really takes a lot to get enough defensive stops, to compete on the glass, to do all these things that they're going to have to do that are harder than they would be for normal teams. And like, God, give P.J. Tucker a nap for a couple months and let him come in, fresh legs. And, and we see the kind of difference that that can make. And so, you know, there are definitely things that would worry me about them. I mean, Sharks bring up Jeff Green, who has been great. My general principle is like the more your team relies on Jeff Green, the worse <laughs> he tends to be. And so he's in that sweet spot right now where he doesn't have to play the crucial minutes, but he can. You know, you'll see Daniel House in some of those. You'll see Eric Gordon, hopefully, when he comes back in some of those. But I think Gordon is going to be really critical for them because, you know, we saw even in, in this game against the Blazers, Portland was willing to basically let Jeff Green shoot. They wanted to protect the rim. They wanted to wall off Russell Westbrook. That was their priority. Teams are going to let him shoot. They're going to let Covington shoot. They're going to let Tucker shoot. They're going to let House shoot. All those guys are going to be tested along the line. And Gordon is the one guy, aside from, you know, Westbrook and Harden, who you, you know, well, less so Westbrook, who you really have to treat like a shooter. You know, even if his percentages are down this year, you have to be out there on him. I think seeing, you know, how much he's able to contribute when he comes back is going to be pretty critical for them. Yeah, it's been interesting watching some of these pseudo centers kind of get to work, uh, especially on defense. They've held up particularly well. Uh, I've, I've been surprised by how well they've they kind of like lull teams, especially teams with bigs into thinking that they should post up all the time. And even if they win half of those matchups, I think that's a win for the Rockets just because of the way that they shoot so many threes. They're, the math is always going to lean to their advantage. The one concern I have, though, is you saw the Blazers 
attack James Harden in the post. And even though it's kind of been the storyline this season that he is such a good post defender, uh, that's one of the reasons why I think this small ball lineup works. I do wonder if you're asking him to be such a creator on offense to do all the work he does there. And then also defending the post, like multiple, multiple possessions, if he's going to wear down and you've seen him already a little bit already kind of look slow, go to the ground a little bit more. And this is the whole concern with Harden. Uh, Charks, is there anything you've seen with Harden thus far, either good or bad? See, I would say the post-ups are a trap. Like the Rockets want you to post up. They don't care who you are. It's a low percentage play. They'll give you that shot. I think if you beat Houston, you make Harden and Westbrook move off the ball. Like those guys fall asleep a lot, spread the floor, beat them at their own game. I think that's really the key. I suppose if you like the Clippers, the Clippers, they don't got to play Zubach against those guys. They should just play Morris, George, Leonard. That's three, six, eight guys. They're still bigger than Houston and they can attack them in space. That's what I would do. Forget trying to post Harden up. Make him move on the perimeter. Yeah. Logan, where are you on Harden? I'm not concerned with him as a post defender, but I am more concerned about making him tired on the other end and, um, you know, potentially getting him fouled out. If he doesn't get fouled out, also, you want him down the stretch. You want him to be making big shots down the stretch. And if he is getting tired on defense, doing all those post moves uh, or, or, or guarding all those post moves, that's going to be a disadvantage for the for the Rockets going forward. That's something that I'm concerned about. I'm not concerned with his ability to be a post defender, but I am confer- concerned with him getting tired out down the stretch. Rob, long term, what are you watching for this team? I mean, there's what, five uh, left. Is there anything you need to see from the Rockets to be either more convinced or or what? I think it's less about that stretch of games and more once we get into a seven game series, how does the dynamic change, right? It's, you know, can the Rockets sustain what they do for four of seven games, especially against high, you know, top caliber competition. And then factoring into this conversation, we've been having about bigs and post-ups and what you should do against them. What is kind of the psychological effect of playing against the Rockets? You know, if you are a team who does what John mentioned, you know, you want to work more off the ball, you don't want to fall into the post trap. How does your starting center feel about that? Because, you know, the use of Nurkic's and the Hassan Whitesides of the world, those guys want to go to work against teams like this. And if you consciously move away from them, how does that affect their effort in other areas? What are you getting from them in different regards? There's there's this very strange push and pull with the Rockets where the thing that they want you to do is also the thing that your big men want you to do and what effect that can have on a team's chemistry as a result. All right, let's talk about the Blazers. I think people in Portland are already mad at us for not starting with them, considering that they are now two and one uh, with big wins over the Rockets and Grizzlies, and they find themselves in pretty good position in this West play-in race. Uh, Logan, thus far, what stood out for you about Portland? I think the biggest thing that stood out to me about Portland is something that we kind of already knew, the heart of Dame Lillard. And he's just carrying this team um, in a lot of different ways. And even when they did lose their one game, I think that they um, he really showed heart. They had to come back and they almost beat the Celtics. And that was a really impressive um, outing, even uh, even in a loss. So I think that, you know, with I think we're going to get to this later on with Jaron Jackson out. This is a prime position for them to get that AC, they are in prime position to do so. Now, I don't know if they're going to do um, anything in that one, a matchup. If they get there with the Lakers, I don't, I don't, I think it's a bit overblown that they're going to be, um, you know, could beat them. But I do believe that the heart of Dame Lillard has really carried this team and also the addition of Nurkic. 
Yeah, during last night's game, just watching Collins and Nurkic pass to each other yeah. uh, in the blocks was incredible. I mean, that's exactly what they were hoping to get from them, and it's been exciting watching them. They're definitely uh, a little thinner <laughs> than right. I think you would like a, a team in their position to be. Uh, you know, Gary Trent Jr., uh, Anthony Simons obviously have provided a bit of a boost here in the bubble. Uh, but then all of a sudden you have the game coming down to Carmelo Anthony, and while Melo yeah. made that shot last night, and there was a lot of talk about, just well, don't be Mello's a blog boy hating on Melo. Uh, yeah, on. I, I feel like that's coming <laughs> right now. I, I can hear it in his voice. You know, Melo made the game winner, but <laughs> right, give my man no, some love. Come on. Yeah. All right. Let's. No, okay, he, he made the game winner, but let's be honest, he did not have a good game. Is that fair, Tarks? I would say, like, the thing about Melo, and you go back to that Celtics game. It's like at the end of the day for the Blazers. They got nobody to guard Jason Tatum, no one to guard Jalen Brown. Like you're asking Melo to be the three and guarding these big wings. That's just like not going to work. And that's the problem with this team, which crazy to say the guy they miss is Trevor Ariza. Without having Ariza here, they just don't have enough guys. We're already at the group chat uh, take of the day, which is Trevor Ariza is the most important uh, player in the world <laughs> so far. No, I, I 100% agree. And I was looking out on the court. I, I've watched, I think, all of their games at this point, And I'm just like, where's the small forward still? And they've gotten to the point where last game, I don't know if he's hurt or if it was just because of how bad he's been playing, but Mario Hazoni did not see the floor. They're pretty much running an eight-man rotation at this point, which I guess is what you have to do. And maybe it's just like a, an extended playoff. You have to look at this uh, these seeding games. But it, I was already a little bit concerned. So sorry for trolling on Melo. But like I do think like the fate of this seeding game period for the Blazers might come down to Melo. Am I wrong, Rob? I mean, I think in a lot of ways it will, you know, to his credit, like he did the most important thing he needs to do, which is in that moment when the ball swings to him, when Lillard gets trapped, like he needs to be willing to take the shot and confident in taking that shot in a way that honestly, Trevor Reza sometimes even is not to say, you know, anything about the Blazers, other wings. And so having that guy helps, but he is going to be targeted. He's going to be put on skates in the pick and roll. Like he's going to be picked on. And I think you raise a good point in the fact that the Blazers don't have a lot of alternatives. You know, they could go super small and put Trent at the three, but it, it, it really is kind of a pinch point for them in a lot of ways. Logan, do you want the floor to defend Mello? Uh, I, I just saw we that, that we got a TD in here that's really about no Mello slander. I'm, I, I, get, I do get the Mello slander on this. I do get it. Um, it's very valid. He's not a great defender. It's all these things, but he's just an older guy right now, right? And I feel like the perfect situation for Melo, he is currently not in it. You want some. You want him to be in a position where he doesn't have to guard those types of players, but he can also get his. He can also get his points on the other end. He's not in that situation right now. You're expecting him to guard a Jason Tatum or a, a Jalen Brown. That's just not going to happen. Not at this stage of his career, and you can make the argument it probably wasn't going to happen earlier in the stage of his career, earlier in his career. So I just think he's just not in the right situation to be as successful as he should be at this stretch of his career. So if he gets the points, fine, but you're just going to have to take that L on a defensive end with Melo going forward. That just is what it is, and we know that with Melo for years. See, I was thinking about it with Melo. I think, like, the reason a lot of players are so kind of defensive about him is they look at Melo and they see themselves. They're like, man, what I'm 34, are they run me out of the league with first possible chance? Like, the NBA is a cold, cold place. And they did Melo real wrong. And a guy like Dame was like, man, when it's my time, it's gonna happen to me the same way. Or am I gonna have, like, not everyone gets the Dirk Wade Kobe treatment, right? Most guys get kicked out of the league in a pretty bad fashion. Wow, this is getting really existential. 
<laughs> I mean, I would say that I, I agree. I mean, I do agree with that point. I mean, I don't know any future Hall of Famers right now that's so polarizing and that sometimes gets so disrespected the way that Mello is getting right now. You would have, you know, he's he is a first ballot Hall of Famer. I think we do forget that, but it is valid reasons why we 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 do slander Mello. It just is what it is at this point. I mean, right. Right. So I'm sorry, TD, who is our, our new podcast lead, who's listening on the podcast today. And, and welcome to Steve, who is our new producer. <laughs> I know he should. No, I, I will say this. Melo's ability to come back this season and provide anything is pretty incredible because he looked cooked two seasons ago. I mean, the Rockets pretty much chased him away after, what, like 10 games, something like that. So the fact that he's giving them significant minutes – uh, is something he's also seems to have trimmed down though. I'm already a little bit fatigued by the skinny mellow nickname. Uh, it's just like, I, I, we're at the point where we just put any word in front of mellow and now he is suddenly some like different person. Uh, but I do want to give charts the floor here because behind mellow, they have found a lot of good guys in the drafts here of late. Uh, Collins probably is the most prominent one, but also Gary Trent Jr., Anthony Simons. Charks, for you, who has been the most impressive young guy for the Blazers thus far? I mean, I think it's been Trent. Trent's been incredible in this bubble so far. He's just not missing shots. He's competing on defense. And the story with him for the draft guys, so he was at Duke one year. He was like the fifth option behind like Bagley, Carter, Grayson Allen. And it was hard for him to be like that small of a piece on a good team. He's taken bad shots, and no one knows how good he is in the on defense because Duke's playing a zone the whole that whole year. So it's like, okay, this guy jacks shots. He has two lottery bigs, doesn't give him the ball, and he's playing in a zone. How good can he possibly be? But Portland, they said, wait a minute, this guy's 6'6", 210. He can really shoot it. That's enough right there to be a good NBA player, right? If you got good, good athletic ability, good size, and a good shot. And sometimes in the draft, we tend to overthink these things. And you look at all the negatives and forget, okay, this guy is 3 and D potential, really, really good. To get him at 37 is an incredible find for a GM. Yeah. And so I think we're all pretty uh, optimistic about the Blazers going forward here. Uh, unfortunately, probably not as optimistic as we were a couple days ago about the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, hadn't played well thus far in the bubble. And yesterday they got some bad news. Jaron Jackson Jr., their stud sophomore, Big man uh, has torn his meniscus in his left knee. Uh, the Grizzlies said that Jackson experienced, and this is in quote, an unstable landing after making contact with an imposing player uh, with contesting a shot. So basically it was a non-contact injury, which is never a good thing. Rob, how do you think this is going to affect Memphis's playoff chances thus far? And I should mention that they are still in eighth and all of the odds favor them at the very least making the playoff game. But I think it's safe to say that this is a pretty a bad outcome. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty devastating for the rotation just because the spacing that he gives you at the four, I mean, Jaron Jackson Jr. is just smooth as hell. I, I mean, he's the kind of the kind of big you can run like a catch-and-shoot corner three to tie the game as we saw in these bubble games. There was like a three-possession stretch, I think it was in the game against Portland, mm, yeah. where he, you know, he caught on the perimeter, you know, worked through the defense, met some resistance, and just dunked all just over somebody. Just driving the lane on Zach Collins. That was nasty. Yeah, it was on Zach, Zach Collins. Collins. Next possession, offensive rebound for a putback. Possession after that, like, trail into a super long three that I think, you know, forced a timeout for Portland. Like, that's the full suite of what we're talking about here. And for a team in Memphis that, you know, John Morant is is a wonderful player, but doesn't have a lot of dynamism collectively. You know, you're asked, Dylan Brooks it will take a lot of shots, kind of whether you want him to or not. 
he will take them. And so you're asking a lot of all these other guys. All of a sudden, Kyle Anderson is doing an uncomfortable amount of work for your team. You know, Jonas Valanciunas is going to have to do more of your scoring, more of your heavy lifting. It gets it gets into dicey territory pretty quickly for them, which is unfortunate because they really did have an impressive season. Yeah, they've got a lot of guys who can step up. Obviously, John Moran has been incredible uh, in his rookie season. Uh, Valanciunas, as you mentioned, has, has probably hasn't played as much as he would like, but He's a guy who can who can log some more minutes for them. Uh, Grayson Allen has been really good thus far, which is weird to say uh, out loud. But there you go. Here's the reality we live in. Uh, Logan, how do you feel about Memphis's chances going forward? Is this kind of a death knell for them? I think it is in terms of uh, Portland is playing so well right now and the upcoming schedule for the Memphis Grizzlies. You got Utah. OKC is really good. Uh, Toronto, really good. Boston really good. And then you have to, you finish with the bucks. It's a tough ask for this team without Jaron Jackson. And you, you, we've just talked about how we, how much we love the Portland trailblazers right now. And I think that from the combination of how Memphis is playing thus far, even before Jaron Jackson got hurt and how, how um, Portland is playing right now, I think Portland, I think, I know this is a question later on, but I think Portland steals at AC. I could see Charks chomping at the bit wanting to talk about Brendan Clark. So please, Chark, educate us about Brendan Clark. Actually, before, I think one thing worth pointing out, that, that Memphis schedule. So notice the last game of the season is against the Bucks. Yeah. There's a connection there. My guy, Taylor Jenkins, his mentor <laughs> is Mike Buttonholzer. You know if it's the last game of the season, the Bucks got nothing to play for. He's doing his guy a solid. Like, come on. Right, he's gonna play like Ilyasova forty-five minutes. He's gonna bench Giannis, Middleton, all those guys. That's a W right there. Like I hate to say it, but my guy T Jenkins gonna get some help there at the end of the season. <laughs> Charles, you want to explain your connection to your guy T Jenkins and Eric? Oh, I mean, he is my guy. We we went to the same high school. I was two years behind him. I got him in practice all the time. He won't admit it, but it, that's true. We are both undersized <laughs> power forwards. Got him on the block, right hook, one two step. Great. And Sharks wrote a, a preseason feature about uh, Jenkins and, and loosely about his connection to him. But no, Sharks, uh, I, I need the Clark love. Can you oh. can you please explain to me? Okay, so he's going to have to be the guy for Memphis. Brandon Clark, I think, to me, he was like the number three player in this draft. I think he has a lot of Sean Marion in his game. He's got a nasty floatery, six foot eight. I think he's the guy. He's going to start for Jaron Jackson. I think the key is you're going to have to play Gorgie Jang at the five to open up the floor for Brandon Clark. So play Gorgie at the five, Clark at the four. That'll get you some offense and some defense. That's the move to make if you're Memphis. San Jose Rob. State legend. <laughs> oh, did you watch him back then? When you, at San Jose oh, yeah, State? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember him. He was just—he was the only thing good about San Jose State basketball. Like, in probably in the history of San Jose State basketball. His jumper from then to now is crazy. Like, how he changed it's, it. It's unbelievable. For sure. I mean, I'm just sad when the answer is Gorgie Jang. You know, like the, the Brandon <laughs> Clark of it all aside, like once we've reached that point, I think it, it speaks to the level of, you know, at, at least distress or at least improvisation that the uh, the Grizzlies are going to have to work with here. It's it's a tough ask for them. And, you know, a lot of these teams in this bracket here, you know, trying to get into the bubble have pretty competitive schedules. I mean, we're at that point in the season and we're also given the bubble, you know, you drop the bottom eight teams in the league. This is kind of what happens. Um, but the Grizzlies, again, like, I just... It really is unfortunate given their situation, given the momentum of it, given all that they had developed, like that they don't get a chance to really kind of defend their spot. Because uh, I, I I don't know that I really trust them to hold on to it without Jackson. Yeah, we're recording right before uh, the Grizzlies and the Pelicans play today. 
Uh, so things might have changed <laughs> by the time you listen to this. Maybe maybe Morant went off for fifty, but you know, let's the just Jazz. say that we they play the Pelicans that. on Monday. I guess it's the Jazz today. All right. Well, there you go. So we'll just come on, that Justin, out. catch fine. up. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing I am one thing I am keeping track of though is while the schedule for the Grizzlies doesn't look great, it looks pretty tough. I do wonder how many of these teams are going to be playing the regulars by the time we get toward the end of these schedules. I didn't think Phoenix had much of a chance when you had four or five other teams ahead of them in this West playoff race, but here they are three and the only three and team in the bubble thus far. The Raptors played today. They are two and let's start with Devin Booker just because he had a pretty significant game yesterday. Logan, uh, has Booker taken a leap this season that you've noticed? He's taken, he's taken a leap to, to be that guy. I mean, we already kind of knew he was that guy. It's funny that you were talking about the Suns being in here. Cause I'm not even sure if they wanted to be here. Uh, at, during <laughs> during the, during the lead up to this bubble, but um, Booker has taken a lip. He he went toe to toe with uh, with Luca the other day, and he has been balling. So I do think that he's done that. I don't think that this uh, that this stretch right now um, will catapult them into the eighth seed. But I think it's 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 something to build on. Whenever <sighs> they we do come back into next season, Booker's been playing really well. Um, that shot over over the Clippers to win that game was ridiculous. Um, he, Booker's a great player, but he has to take that mini leap. I think he's on the way right now. I think this is kind of a nice culmination of where he's been this year. I, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but I, I've come a very long way on Booker over the course of this season, just from an effort and feel perspective. He was a guy who I felt like before there were just signs all over his game that he played for a bad team. You know, there were just really bad habits he would, you know, fold on, you know, he'd be really competitive on defense in some games and then just completely fold halfway through possession in other games. And this year, he's, you know, he's built on not only his skill level, but really built up that kind of game-to-game consistency, those game-to-game habits. And here, you know, it, it's really showing out in a big way, not only hitting incredible shots over all NBA-level defenders, but carrying the Suns, anchoring so much of what they do, and really kind of contextualizing a lot of the pieces around him in a promising way. You know, there's so many guys on the Suns who are showing out and impressing right now that I wasn't really expecting to think so fondly of it. You know, campaign is good now, I guess, question mark. Um, and so there's all these little case studies within the Suns that if Booker is this good all the time, then all of a sudden some of these other pieces make a lot more sense. I was watching the Celtics game the other day, the Celtics and the Suns, and I believe it was Scal who was like, is that campaign? Is he still in the league? <laughs> Uh, so that's where uh, the the Suns' backup point guard situation is at, which is surprising because they've had like 30 first-round picks over the past couple of years. I don't know how they are now uh, with campaign as the backup point guard. I think the real key, I mean, Booker's awesome. He's been awesome. It's been their wings. So Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson, that's two six-foot-eight guys who can shoot threes, who know their role, who play defense. And that's really been the big difference to me is those two guys stepping up. Like Cam Johnson, he was, I think, the 11th pick this year. Everyone thought he was kind of a reach, but looking back on it now, he's got the size, got the shooting ability, got the tools. Now if you have Booker and you have those two guys bring back Kelly Oubre next year, you've got a freaking massive team with a lot of size around Booker. That's going to be very dangerous next season. I think it's in our contract that we have to mention Mikhail Bridges, who has become like blogger catnip out here. <laughs> like just blog boy king. <laughs> you see his blog boy play at the end of that Suns game that got the, got the uh, deflection against the Clippers. Oh yeah, to get Booker's shot. I mean, that was his. That was his. Much as Booker's. Absolutely. Dedicate. Dedicate. You know, six, a good six hundred words to that play right now, please. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, the wings have been good. My, I'll say, concern 
is always going to be DeAndre Ayton. Uh, he's always going to be diminished just because he's going to be compared to Luca and then also Trey Young and some of those other guys from the draft. But as I'm watching him, I'm all I am screaming at the TV is that you are the biggest motherfucker on the court. Why do you only shoot from five to 10 feet out? Like all he wants to do is take these shots from the block. And I just, I do not understand it. I know that like Zubach, maybe he's just like an incredible post defender that I just don't realize. But to me, Aiton, I know he's made progress, especially on the defensive end. I'm sure everyone here is going to throw a bunch of like advanced stats and tell me why I'm wrong, but it's just so disappointing watching him still do this now, what, two years into his career. Logan, where are you on Aiton? Wow. I, I just, I just want to appreciate just, how lit you were just now just like i just want to <laughs> i just want to you got really 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 into that i just want to i just want to just take a moment to appreciate that i don't get excited about a lot but you know deandre in slander and mellow slander are right up there i get it i mean it, <laughs> what's it is it's third year it's his third year in the league give him some time man I, I would just say give him some time to figure himself out right now i mean he he's already made strides on the defensive end like you said he, sometimes you just have to know you're the bi- biggest motherfucker on the court. Like you can see it, but sometimes you just got to know it in your head. So let him just give him some time, Justin. He, it's going to be okay. That's what I would say. Cause you, you were, you were real lit in that moment. And I just want to make sure that you're fine. One and two, just yeah. let you know it's going to be all right. I, I appreciate that, man. All right. <laughs> I mean, the one thing that the Suns see, seem like they have going for them though is chemistry. And I thought it was, a good contrast with the Clippers who like, I'm not going to say they they have chemistry chemistry concerns, but clearly it took them the entire season to really figure out life with Kawhi life with these huge expectations on them. They were no longer this fun team that Lou Williams and Trez were leading quick tangent on the Clippers. And my question is why do we give the Clippers so much respect that they have not earned yet? Why are we doing this? Cause I just Kawhi. feel like, I, I get that, but I just feel like that I've said this, I've said this, I've said this all season. I'm very I'm disappointed at the lack of urgency that the Clippers have had all season. Now, I think that they've showed stretches where they are great, but for a team that hasn't won anything, I would feel like they need a, a bit more sense of urgency. And I just have not seen that yet. I just feel like they've gotten the benefit of the doubt in a way that another another team who who was in that position wouldn't necessarily get. So I've been disappointed with the Clippers so far. And I just want to know why they do get, I get because I get because of Kawhi, but I, I would like to see a lot more sense of urgency and oomph from them that I've, than I've seen all season. I mean, that's the Kawhi thing, right? Like he's just not going to go to the playoffs. Like that's just who he is now. Yeah. I feel like it's a case where, you know, the franchise, not just the team, but like the whole organization can kind of take on the personality of your best player sometimes where, you know, the Lakers comparison is easy in a lot of ways, but if you're a LeBron team, and you're kind of, you know, lose, you know, going on some losing streaks, splitting games into January, February of a normal regular season. The amount of pressure that that puts on everyone on the roster, like those guys are asking, you know, answering those questions every day. And so, like, I, I do feel like LeBron and AD and those guys understood they had to come out of the gate a little stronger. They had to prove something to themselves and find that, you know, rhythm and rotation of the regular season. First, Kawhi, like as Chuck was saying, I feel like doesn't. Not, not only doesn't give a shit about the stakes of the regular season, but it may just be proactively healthier for him to not really participate in it to the fullest extent. The, the thing I'll say about the Clippers, though, I find it really hard to evaluate them right now in particular, um, given, you know, they have a couple guys who left the bubble and not to get into the personal business of those people, but they left the bubble for a reason, all of which, you know, have a lot that would weigh on a person individually. 
And so, you know, we've seen, you know, if you're following, you know, Montrez Harrell on Instagram, like he's clearly a guy who's going through a lot right now. And you have Lou Williams and you have Pat Bev and these guys who are working themselves into a position physically to compete in these games, which is difficult, you know, after a months long layoff. And we've, you know, we've seen Pat deal with, you know, some, some kind of nagging injuries here and there trying to get him healthy and back in the rotation. But it's, with all these guys who are coming and going, I think we tend to look at it as, you know, almost like fantasy basketball or like a daily fantasy kind of perspective. Like, oh, this guy's in the lineup. This guy's out. This is how that affects their chances. But there's like a human thing here that is very challenging in that all the people who are leaving, if, you know, even if they're, especially if they're dealing with other people in their lives, that's, that's a lot to ask of them to jump back into the mix. Sure. Yeah. I mean, as funny as the Lou Williams going to the strip club for chicken wings thing was like, he even said I think, yesterday, yeah, exactly. They, like they're all dealing with very real things. I think that is where I would bring in how disjointed the, the Clippers were during the regular season. This is probably the worst case scenario for them just to have this giant pause and now for guys to be coming in and out because Kawhi's whole thing is that he's so meticulous about how he paces himself over the big picture. And if the big picture changes, then all of a sudden, like you're trying to work around these certain things. And now they're just like, it, they were hoping probably to have all these guys back and probably clicking at this moment. And now all of a sudden you have guys gone. And so uh, it's just probably, it's just not working out as well as they probably hope for. Having said that they're still incredibly talented. Yes. Uh, even like the, you could take away from this game, the fact that Zubach coughed, like coughed up the, the ball there late in the game. I mean, he was Sorry, actually that was, playing. That was Mikhail Bridges stole the ball. Late <laughs> sure. <in the> sure. <laughs> And he can't hold a candle to Mikel Bridges, but like he actually got those minutes, whereas typically maybe that went to Trez or somebody else. And the very least he got that rep. So there, that would be the silver lining. I will say like, there'll be a good test case. Like we all want to believe these guys got to be best friends off the court and chemistry is so important. Maybe that matters and maybe having the best players matter more. We'll see. It's weird that that argument is because how much do you have to like each other to win, right? Because you know, the Lakers or the, the early 2000s Lakers are a case study is like, you might not need everyone to like each other. You know, the, the end of the Warriors uh, dynasty is, uh, you know, they might not necessarily didn't have to all love each other. Right. So, um, and then you have the early, the early edition of the Warriors where they all loved each other. So I don't know. I, I think it's a, it's a lot of nuance in there and it's, it's, it's weird to kind of get a hold on what works. It just kind of works when it does. Yeah. I think that's totally true. But then this is why the bubble is so fascinating to me because now all these guys, yeah, maybe they didn't like each other, but now mm -hmm. they're like pretty much in a dorm room together. They're spending all their time. And as much as I love Charks, if I spend every waking hour with Charks, you would be very blessed. Let's be real. <laughs> Your life would be so much better, Justin. Take you to church. <laughs> this and, is and the this group is chat I, content we need. We need the live feed of you guys in a biome together, living out your days, you know, accomplishing meaningless tasks. Let's do it. Let's get the live feed going. If I get Justin in Bible studies, man, his life will just shoot up. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. But that's where I think like a young team like the Suns perhaps may have a slight advantage, you know, just because it seems like these guys are probably like college age anyway. So they're probably like, this isn't all that different for them. But uh, that brings us to kind of our big question here, Charks. Um, who for you has the inside track on this West Because this is really the biggest question for the next week plus of, of these seeding games. So I'm looking at the schedules and the Pelicans last five games, it's Kings, Wizards, Spurs, Kings, Magic. I think that alone, even if not playing that great, if those are your five opponents, they should go four and one, 
three and two at worst against those five teams, I think that gets them in that play-in game. So to me, the Pelicans have the edge because of all these teams, they have the easiest schedule. So they'll be in that play-in game no matter what. Whereas Grizzlies, Spurs, Blazers, Suns, they've all got to play much harder teams. So to me, I'll give the Pelicans the edge for now. I was kind of riding the Grizzlies bandwagon for this just because of the play-in game advantage and you know having the, the seed already. But without Jackson, I think I'm like jumping on the first flight to Portland. The first like socially distanced, no middle seat, everyone wearing their face shields uh, flight That's to Portland. That's not a bad destination on your flight, by the way. No, not, not too bad. <laughs> just don't go to the courthouse. <laughs> But this like this game against the Rockets, I think, was pretty illuminating in that they played kind of a similar game earlier in the season, uh, obviously without use of Nurkic. You know, Dame made like a less than a third third of his shots. CJ McCollum was kind of like good, but OK. And they just got completely blown out. And you put Nurkic in there and the complexion of everything completely changes. So you have a guy who, you know, just by not having to involve Hassan Whiteside in a central defensive action for like possession after possession is a big change. And then you have Gary Trent Jr. who is apparently like inhabited by the spirit of Ray Allen all of a sudden, which is great for them. But like another guy who can hit shots, who can make plays. I think there's enough there that, you know, with, with you know, the Spurs and the Blazers especially have pretty difficult schedules. But I, I kind of like where Portland sits in all this, just given the guys that they've gotten back. I said this earlier in the show, the Blazers, I think, are going to get end up getting that eighth seed um, just with the momentum that they have. And I'm not... I'm not too sold on the Pelicans right now. I'm just not. Um, just for I just don't think they're ready yet. Um, I think that just the way this season has gone and how... I don't know how they're managing uh, Zion. Does anyone have a really good answer for that? I don't think we do at this point. Um, and it's, it's a weird way to go about it when... Uh, you a player that you need on a night-to-night basis to get that AC, you have him on a minutes restriction. And I just am of the mind, if you're going to play him, play him. If you're not, then just don't play him because the stakes are high right now. Um, so with all that being said, I think that the, at this moment, the way the Blazers are playing, I think that they're going to play their way into the postseason. Yeah, I mean, the Pelican situation is weird. On the one hand, they are definitely going out of their way to take care of Zion, perhaps in the ways that they didn't, like... I wouldn't say they didn't take care of Anthony Davis, but at the very least, that was a concern. Their medical staff and uh, obviously in previous iterations of that regime, there were a lot of injuries and it really sidetracked what they were trying to do. And so I, I credit the Pelicans for what they're doing. On the other hand, they very clearly could have just played Zion at the end of the fourth quarter in that first game, as opposed to the beginning. There was this weird yeah. explanation where they wanted him to go in the beginning of the quarters because he, want, he needed to be warmed up, which makes sense in the first and the third when you have those breaks, but I don't know why you would have to do that in the second and the fourth. So it just seems like they're star-crossed at this point. They have all the, the, the right guys in place. Ingram has done well. Uh, Zion is obviously a revelation. It just doesn't seem like this is the year, as, as disappointing as that would be to see him play LeBron in a first-round series. Uh, I, I would go Blazers too. And considering the fact they did this whole bubble so that Zion could fight for <laughs> eight seed, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it didn't have this <laughs> weird. Team. Yeah, it's I, I don't I don't I, I just don't get that. I just especially in the first game where it's a winnable game. They went down to the last seconds. You have Zion on the floor down the stretch. That's a win that you need. And I just don't get how they're how they're playing that. Especially consider, like I said, considering the fact that we we did this whole thing and we added the Pelicans strictly so we could get a Zion LeBron first round, and just somebody just fumbled the bag is just baffling to me right now. 
Yeah. We're going to talk about the Lakers uh, coming up after a break here, uh, where we get into some of our nerd corner with Charks leading us through some of their lineups. But uh, Logan, thank you for joining us on the return of Group Chat. Yo, thanks for having me, man. I'll talk to y'all soon. and Rob and myself are still here. Uh, we're going to do Nerd Corner now, uh, which is similar to what Sharks had done over the past few pods we did right before the break, uh, where he looks at some of the most interesting lineup combinations in the NBA. Uh, today, we're going to focus on the Lakers, which as an editor is near and dear to my heart because Sharks picked the biggest red meat team on, on, on the table here. But uh, they've been really impressive thus far. I believe they're two and one and Anthony Davis looks like probably the best player in the bubble thus far. Uh, Charles, why don't you lead us through some of the things that have been happening with the Lakers? Well, I think for the record, this is called the impossibly good-looking person's corner. Just clarify that <laughs> <laughs> before we can get going. <laughs> how good. dare you, sir? Okay, yeah. so we're looking at the Lakers. The thing to me that's jumped out in these first three games is how well they're playing when Anthony Davis is playing without LeBron. So that has been their biggest problem all season is those non-LeBron AD minutes. Because the idea was, okay, if you have AD, then LeBron can rest. He can get his he can get his time off, and he'll still be fine. But before the restart, when AD was out with LeBron, he was minus three and like 500, 600 minutes. And it's like, those are important minutes the Lakers have to win. In the restart, I mean, it obviously is a very small sample size, but who cares? We're, we're doing a podcast. In the restart, they're plus 19 <laughs> when AD's playing without LeBron. That's just a massive flip on their whole situation. And to me, watching those minutes, what stood out to me, I think, number one, not having Rajon Rondo. Like, I think that really kind of low-key killed their team because when Rondo's playing, he has to have the ball, right? Like, Rondo can't play off the ball, so he's holding the ball. He's not really a threat to score, so no one's really guarding him. And then on defense, he's not giving you much either. So, like, I looked at the numbers. When AD and Rondo without LeBron, it was minus five. And without Rondo, they're playing Caruso and Waiters with AD. The floor is spread. And the thing about Anthony Davis, you don't need a traditional point guard with Anthony Davis. Give AD the ball in the mid post. He'll just kill people, right? He gets the ball, then it kicks out to another shooter instead of the Rondo. So it's like AD without Rondo, that's been great. And the other thing, too, is AD at the five. So they're going AD, Kuzma, then like Green or KCP, Caruso, Waiters, whatever. 80s numbers at the five this year are insane. They're absolutely ridiculous. So, okay, looking at with, with no JaVale and no Dwight, 80 has a usage of 28, true shooting of 66.6. Now, basically, that means in English is 80s getting the ball like he's Harden or Giannis, and he's been the most efficient player in the league. So if looking at those two numbers, there's only been one player in NBA history to have to be that efficient at that high usage, and that's Steph, like five years ago. So basically, when 80's at the five, he's as efficient as Steph <coughs> without shooting threes. He's basically scoring at will every single time. I think, long story short, 80 has more room to grow, and I think we're seeing that right now. Like, letting AD play in space, giving him the ball, he's got levels still to go to. He's getting to them right now. Yeah, so the biggest thing off of that, which was great. Um, I just wonder uh, if their margin for error is too thin right now. Obviously the Lakers have been incredible. And so let's get that caveat out of the way. I think 
probably the favorite, if not among the favorites for the title. Um, people like to remind us on the group chat, specifically Chris and I, because I don't think Charks was a party to this. I said that, that one. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where we, we pretty much... We trolled the Lakers after their first loss of the season and said that they might finish with like the sixth seed, but clearly they've, they've far exceeded those expectations. They're great. Please don't at me. Uh, but I do wonder as, as bad as Rondo has been at times, uh, as much as Bradley is the fifth most important guy on that starting lineup at times, I do wonder if their margin for error is a little bit more thin and you are relying on the Caruso's of the world, uh, on the KCPs of the world more than you would like to. Am I wrong, Rob? No, I mean, I'm I'm pretty compelled by this whole situation that Charks laid out. Like, the idea of shifting some of those pieces around and unlocking AD in a different way, like, makes logical sense to me, given his skill set. This is a guy who can, you know, Kevin O'Connor talked in, in the restart this week about how Bam out of bio inverts defenses, and AD in the mid-post has a similar effect, where if you clear out, you give him space, and he can just straight-line drive past almost any big in the league. Like, that's such a powerful thing that there should be a way to orient pieces around that that makes sense. I think where I get skeptical is in that margin for error. And it's in, you know, if you look at kind of the core of these lineups, AD and Kyle Kuzma and Alex Caruso are kind of the three-man anchor of it. And then around that, there's just, a, you know, a, a revolving door of guards. You know, you got some Danny Green minutes, you got some Deion Waiters minutes, you got some J.R. Smith, you got some KCP, you got whoever, you know, they can cobble together in that minute in the rotation. And those guys scare the hell out of me a little bit. Um, and I think, you know, when you kind of flash back to AD as a Pelican and where he was, some of where they fell apart without, you know, Drew Holiday on the floor, without kind of more traditional point guards on the floor, was just not having competent entry passers, not having just guys who could get AD the ball in positions to score, which is, it seems like such an easy thing, but it's a thing I don't trust Deion Waiters to do. But it is a thing, you know, maybe I do trust Danny Green to do it. You know, like some of these more professional veteran level guys, like th that distinction I think is an important one and probably the difference between bubble seeding games and bubble playoff games, right? Where you're getting the JRs and the Dion's at least lower in the pecking order, if not out of the rotation on a regular basis entirely. And then you're looking at these minutes where it's, you know, Danny Green and KCP and those three guys. And can that work? I think, I think there's a chance that it does. Uh, but I, I do get a little bit suspect just in the sense that you know, once playoff defenses are really keying in on what this lineup looks like and how it works, what does that mean for AD? Because, you know, Giannis has had that scrutiny in terms of a big who handles the ball, who's creating for, you know, space lineups. Like, we know what that looks like, and defenses know what that looks like. Defenses have kind of just been dealing with these Lakers lineups without LeBron on the floor all year, haven't had a lot of trouble with them, but they haven't hammered them either in terms of, the, you know, the mechanics of how they work. If this starts working, then you invite that level of scrutiny. I think it's worth pointing out... Um... Kuzma, I think he's a huge part of that as AD at the five, Kuzma's the four. He's played really well. Are you buying the new Kyle Kuzma or not? Is it a new Kyle Kuzma is my question. <laughs> or is this just same Kuzma, different hair color? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm very mixed on Kuzma. Uh, clearly, he is sort of the, not trading him, it would be the inflection point probably of this season. And clearly this season's a really important one when you consider LeBron's age and uh, some of the other things going around, uh, around the league. I don't know, Rob, where, where are you on that? Do you have any faith that like shot is on the line? Kyle Kuzma is your new Robert Ori. I mean, I don't love it, but you know, these are the kinds of lineups where you want him, right? Like if, if you're talking about, do we trade Kyle Kuzma for a fifth starter type spot up wing 
you know, like a, you know, a Danny Green, another Danny Green to work into this lineup. This is where that pays off the decision to keep him because not only do you have a big with a little bit of stretch in Kuzma's case, who can play alongside AD, but a guy who's a little bit positionally versatile on defense, who can guard some wings, who can guard, you know, pick up a guy in a switch. And if you're talking about a lineup that's, you know, Caruso and KCP or Danny Green as the backcourt or, you know, on the perimeter, and then you have AD and Kuzma in the front court, like all of a sudden that's a very viable, very switchable lineup that I think, you know, when, you, when you're asking second unit creators to go up against that, I think that could be pretty formidable. I kind of trust, as with most things with the Lakers, LeBron accepted. I trust the defense more than I trust the offense. Yeah, I think for me, what I look at, it's like what Rob saying about where he's being used. To me, you didn't trade Kuzma. That means you know Dwight and JaVale, they're out of there in the playoffs. Like, I'm looking at it right now on the restart. Dwight and JaVale are averaging uh, 25, 26 minutes a game. If I was the Lakers, I'm putting them at 10. I want 80 at the five for like 40 minutes. I want 80 at the five, Kuzma at the four, LeBron at the three, two guards. That to me is your winning lineup. And that's what I want to see too with Frank Vogel. How much room does he have to make these lineups work? Will he bench Rondo when he comes back? Because like worth pointing out, Rondo didn't get benched. He just got hurt. He'll be back soon enough. If he's hurting the team, does Vogel have the stones? Just drop him. I'm not sure that he does. I think we all want AD at the five. I think every coach that has ever coached uh, Anthony Davis wants AD at the five. The question is, like, how much does AD want AD at the five? And I do think uh, not only is it a willingness thing, but it's clearly just like, I mean, I don't know if he wants to take that pounding. I don't know if the team wants him to take that pounding. I think ultimately everything that we're talking about comes down to the LeBron effect. And clearly LeBron has an immense effect on how the game is played, how the players play, all that. But I also think the thing that AD had been missing in his career previously is someone who could manage the leadership load, who can really get the most out of some of these fringe guys like the Waiters, the Caruso's, the Dwight Howard's. I don't think that's happening on the Pelicans with AD as your number one guy. And while Rondo played well a couple of years ago, you've seen a lot of guys coming through AD because and this isn't really a knock so much as like, just as like a matter of fact, I just don't think he is a number one in terms of how we think he's a number one. I think he's probably the most talented player on most courts pretty much the entire season, but I just don't think he sees himself as that. And I don't know if you want him to see himself as, as that because he's done so well with LeBron taking on so much of the burden, like the being the face of everything and playing off of that. It's a little bit more, uh, I know it's a little bit more just like reading the tea leaves and everything like that, but I do think this has a significant effect and I've seen it up close play an effect on AD. Well, I think this is one of the best places to be in basketball, honestly, is, is, you know, we've seen guys like Kyrie Irving experience both sides of this, that LeBron presence and vacuum and, you know, both sides, there's a there's a detriment to both sides. Like it's complicated playing with LeBron, but you want to be the guy who's playing with LeBron, who deals with less of the extracurricular bullshit that he just kind of absorbs by being the presence in the room, and yet you get the the commentary and the media and the commentary among fans like, oh, is this guy actually better than LeBron right now? Like, is he more critical to our team because he's that talented and that effective? So you get to be the player. You know, Anthony Davis gets to play, be the player he always could be, as effective as dominant. Now he has you know, one of the best playmakers in the history of the sport setting him up. And yet he doesn't have to deal with all that other stuff. And like just taking that off a player's plate, I think is such a vital thing. And it really isn't a criticism. It's just like 
a commentary on who these guys are as personalities and what they are willing to do and what they want to do. Some guys don't want that responsibility, and that's fine. I think AD has gone back and forth over his career as to whether he wants to be considered a face of a franchise in that way. But now that option has been removed from him. You know, like it, it's beyond him essentially at that point. Once you once you kind of get into business with LeBron, and I think it served him pretty well. So this is my thought, and forget about like the face the franchise stuff. To me, okay, it's Lakers Clippers down the stretch of the game. LeBron eighty pick and roll. They switch to pick and roll. Who attacks the mismatch? Right? Is it eighty over someone, or is LeBron pulling it out to attack and eighty being off LeBron? I'm thinking like if the Lakers won a championship, it has to be AD as the guy, LeBron's the number two. Because LeBron is 35-36. You look at his numbers, like that Clippers game the other night, he didn't score very efficiently at all, right? LeBron can't bully the Clippers. He's not as fast as he used to be, not a great shooter. And I just wonder like when it's all said and done, if the Lakers are the champions at the end of the year, is Anthony Davis the finals MVP and not LeBron? I think that has to happen is my guess. I think it probably depends on what quarter it is. You know, like I, I could see that kind of thing happening a lot throughout the bulk of the game. I have a hard time believing that LeBron is giving that up quite so easily. Like I think the, you know, the mantle has, you know, the torch has been passed in so many ways in terms of the load of carrying a team throughout the regular season. Like LeBron's willing to take a step back from some of that stuff, but like game on the line, you know, even if it's not a switch, Kawhi Leonard in front of him, they need one shot to go ahead or tie the game. I mean, LeBron's going to make the right basketball play, but so many times in the LeBron universe, the right basketball play is him doing whatever the fuck he wants. Yeah, I mean, listen, we talked about how LeBron is probably the perfect teammate for AD. I think it goes both ways. I think AD is just as good as for LeBron. And I, I think, I mean, no disrespect to J.J. Hickson, but like, I think AD is going to go down as LeBron's best teammate. And I think it actually works perfectly that you allow AD to dominate. And then when you need LeBron to step in, like he did against that in that game against the Clippers, when he didn't play well, but all of a sudden he made the two biggest plays of the game and, and that's it. I mean, you do need those sort of guys to, to step in there. Um, and like, I mean, this is the story of the season as a whole. We've been saying this from day one. The Lakers have the best big two in the league. It's just how much is that going to matter versus the Clippers who have just like go, what, 10 deep or however they go, however far they go. I think worth pointing out, too, what you said, Justin, about AD being the best player in the bubble. I think that's been right so far. And I just look at the whole league, and I think all you've been talking about Kawhi versus LeBron, these two, like, masterminds building teams together. But, like, you look at it, there's two seven-footers who can't be stopped, right, who can guard all five positions. They play on two of the three best teams in the league. It's Giannis versus AD. It kind of feels like maybe we've been focusing on the wrong thing. Maybe the next five years of the NBA, it's that rivalry. Because, right, who can stop Giannis but AD, basically? Is he not the best Giannis guard in the league? And the verse, too. Like, if it's Giannis versus AD one-on-one, who's going to win that? That's going to be so much fun to watch in the finals. For sure. Charks asked a question the other day, uh, just on Slack, we were talking, and he said, would AD thrive in the way that Giannis has with the Bucks?" I don't think that's true. I don't think he would. I, I, I just think that Giannis is... Uh, a, a particular player. And I, I just don't know if AD has the ability to uh, really like operate the offense in the way that Giannis does right now. We should be careful not to underrate the value of the battering ram that is Giannis lowering his shoulder from the top of the floor. Like that's a thing that, you know, especially when you talk about a player like Davis, who has been reluctant to play the five, as we talked about, to be engaged in that level of physicality on an every play basis over the course of his career. Like he's wanted to protect himself in certain ways that 
I give him, you know, like, of course he should do that. Like, he should play however he's comfortable. He should fight for whatever position he thinks is the best for him. But, like, Giannis is willing to do things that other guys are not. Like, he is an all-out player all the time. He will go, you know, into the teeth of the defense no matter how many times he gets swatted in the face or, you know, bowled over, pulled down. Like, that kind of thing, it's, it's, this is superstar stuff we're talking about, but it's kind of thankless in its own way. You know, it's funny you say that. Because, like, everyone's talking about with Giannis, oh, could the Heat beat them because they've got Bam? Because Bam's the one guy you lower your shoulder into him, he's not moving. But if AD's playing against Bam, he's just raising up a 12 feet and shooting over him because he's only 6'9". And that's the thing Giannis doesn't have. That makes them such a fascinating one, too, is Giannis and AD, right? Maybe AD needs Giannis' kind of, like, get-to-the-rim mentality, and Giannis needs AD's touch at 12 foot. And what's more important in a series versus two seven-footers? I don't know. All right, that's a good place to end it. We will be back next Wednesday. Uh, You will see the three of us and and someone else jumping in on the first half. Uh, For me, for Rob, for Charks, for Steve on the production. uh, Yeah, shout out Steve, new producer. Steve. Hi, Steve, and also bye, Steve. We'll see you next week. Basketball is very good. Basketball is very good.